Everything good comes with a cost. Moving jobs, moving to a newer, better job. You have to meet new people, figure out new systems, navigate new social dynamics. A college degree, it's amazing, but it means late nights and student loans and maybe some debt. Moving out of your parents' home, freedom. But now you have to pay rent and do your own laundry and there's no self-cleaning toilet. Marriage, marriage is amazing, but very costly. Children, children are amazing. Having kids is great, but they're costly, right? So much time and energy and tears and sleep, right? If you're a friend and you drive your other friend to the airport at 4 a.m., you are an amazing friend. We all know this. But to be a parent is to be that kind of friend for your kids for years. Our kids are older and they've been waking us up at 4 a.m. ever since we moved to Vancouver. And so I'm so tired all the time. Having kids is amazing, but it costs you. Following Jesus has been the most beautiful, meaningful, exciting thing in my life but it comes with a cost as well. The cost may look different for all of us, but there is a cost to following Jesus. And as we hop into Ephesians 3 today, we're gonna to be reminded about what following Jesus cost the Apostle Paul and why the mission was worth it. And we're gonna come back to that idea at the end because Paul does in the passage we're studying. But if you have your Bible, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter 3, Starting in verse 1, here's what the Apostle Paul writes. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles or non-Jews. Let's stop right there. This is a great reminder. The author of this letter is a guy named Paul. And Paul's name used to be Saul. And he hated Jesus and he hated followers of Jesus. He made it his mission to destroy the church, arresting Christians and throwing them in jail. And yet here, he talks about being in prison for Christ. That following Jesus cost him his freedom. He writes this letter from a prison in Rome to a church in Ephesus that he planted. How fascinating is this? He used to throw Christians in prison for following Jesus. And now he himself is in prison for telling people about Jesus. That's a big shift. That's a big difference. What happened? Like, Just pause and think about that for a second. Paul went from a persecutor of Christians to a pastor and a church planner. It's like, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, historically, you just have to explain that big of a transformation. And if you talk to the Apostle Paul and ask him, what happened, man? Like, how did you go from a persecutor of Christians, you know, throwing Christians in prison to being imprisoned for telling people about Jesus? And he would say that he encountered the risen Christ. And the story is actually recorded in the book of Acts Chapter 9, and I'll read it to you. It's a great reminder. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called the followers of Jesus in the first century. It's why we named our church the way, right? If he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul's on a mission to destroy the church. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How amazing is that? Paul is, or Saul here, is persecuting followers of Jesus. Jesus shows up and says to him, why are you persecuting me? That Jesus has so bound himself to his people. When they're persecuted, he's persecuted. When they suffer, he suffers. And so Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then Jesus tells another believer named Ananias, who's in that city, to go to Paul and tell Paul what his mission will be. And so Jesus says to Ananias, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so this encounter with Jesus and this commission radically shaped Paul's view of the church and his own mission. Here Paul, when he writes this letter, he's suffering with Jesus and for Jesus in prison. And he was literally a prisoner for the sake of telling the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the good news of Jesus. He made it his mission to travel all throughout the Roman Empire telling people, Jews and non-Jews, about the good news of Jesus. And he planted churches in all these different cities. And as a result of his missionary journeys, he was beaten and, and stoned. He was, you know, they throw rocks at you, trying to kill you. He experienced that. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. And he suffered all of that to tell people the good news of Jesus. And so he just starts this passage and goes, hey, you know, I, Paul, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes on a bit of a digression, but it's so rich and meaningful. Let me read to you verses two to six. Paul says this, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery, keyword, made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so Paul goes on this digression, and he talks about the insight he was given into the mystery of Christ. He received it by revelation. Alita talked about this weeks ago. Revelation, it's the Greek word apocalypsis. It means an unveiling. It's like God opening the curtains, letting the light in so that we can see. 
Revelation enables us to view history and the events in our lives from God's perspective. And Paul talks about his revelation into the mystery of Christ. The Greek word translated as mystery is mysterion, and Paul uses it 21 times in his letters and six times in the book of Ephesians. It's a key word. And the word mystery here doesn't mean a riddle to figure out in the biblical usage. It doesn't mean a problem to solve either. Mystery means, and you can see this from the text, it means something that was concealed in the mind of God and has now been revealed through revelation in the present. Something that was concealed that has now been revealed. And Paul defines the mystery for us. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Jason last week unpacked so much of this idea. If you didn't hear that message, go find it on the podcast. It'll kind of fill out more of what we're talking about today. But Paul says, in Jesus, Gentiles, you and I, non-Jews, we're now part of the family. We're members of God's people and one body. We were excluded from the covenant people of God. We were without hope. We were without the true and living God. But now, we've been brought in here. We are in on what God is doing in the world. That through faith in Jesus... There is one people of God, Jew and Gentile, who share together in God's plans, purposes, and blessings. This is not about one group replacing the other. It's about both groups becoming one in Jesus, who is our peace and makes the two one. One people, one family. We're all invited. We're all included. There's a story from the Second World War where some soldiers brought a body of a fallen comrade to a French cemetery to have him buried. They desperately wanted a proper burial for their fallen friend. And the priest came out and he told them kindly that he was bound to ask if their friend was baptized as a member of the Catholic Church. And they replied, well, we don't, we don't know. And the priest said he was very sorry, but he could not allow him to be buried in the cemetery. So the soldiers had to take their fallen friend and bury him just outside of the fence, an unmarked grave. And the next day, the soldiers, they came back just to see how the grave was, to make sure it was undisturbed, to see if it was all right. And they couldn't find it anywhere. And they searched, and they searched, and they searched, and they were about to leave. They couldn't find it. They're confused. They're upset. And the priest approached them. And he told them that he lost sleep the night before, thinking about his refusal. So early in the morning, he had arisen from bed and with his own hands had moved the fence to include the body of the soldier who had died in France. And it's almost like we see Jesus doing something similar from day one in his ministry. 
moving fences metaphorically to invite more people in. He moves all kinds of barriers to offer a drink to a Samaritan woman at a well. He moves all kinds of fences to go to the house of a Roman officer because his daughter is sick. He breaks down all kinds of walls to touch those with leprosy and other kinds of uncleanliness. Jesus is always jumping over or moving fences to seek and save sinners, to draw near those who are far off. It's one of the reasons we love Jesus so much. And there's this strange idea in some forms of scholarship and in the popular imagination that Paul somehow ruined the movement Jesus started. It's not true. Paul just continues the work of Jesus, breaking down dividing walls to include more people. He says, you were excluded Gentiles, but now you're included through Christ. Now, I love that story about the soldier and the priest and the fence. Uh, But to be honest with you, Jay did not like the story very much. And so in case that one didn't land with you, it wasn't appropriately like emotive for you, I'll try another one. You've all seen probably the film Forrest Gump. If you haven't, you should. Um, But there's a scene right near the start when young Forrest, he's a kid, and he goes on the school bus for the first time and he's walking down the aisle and there's all these empty seats and the kids look at him and go, you can't sit here, or seats taken. And it's so painful to watch until he comes up to, to Jenny, if you remember the scene, and she goes, you can sit here if you want to. And it's the start of this beautiful lifelong friendship. And it's so powerful and emotive, especially in light of the rejection he was experiencing. And in a sense, what Paul is saying to Gentiles is that in Christ, there's a seat for you. You can sit here. You can come close. You're part of the family. And Paul is so gripped by this truth. And it's important to realize that Paul's not an innovator here. Like this was God's plan all along, that God promised a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12, that that he would have descendants, which would become a nation, and they would bless the entire world. It was promised that the Messiah would inherit the nations and that Israel would be a light to the nations. Jesus even commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations. It was always the plan. It was always about the nations, all peoples. God's tribe is as big as the whole world. His heart is big enough for the whole world. It's always been that way. And that reality is kind of puzzled close readers of Paul here, because Paul does say, you you heard me read it, just back to the text here, he says, he has insight into the mystery of Christ that, quote, was not made known to people in other generations as it's now been revealed by the Spirit. So if God's plan was always to bring blessing to the whole world, in what sense is this a new revelation? Like, in what sense is this something that was concealed that has now been revealed? And I think the answer is that really, even the first disciples like like Peter and John at first, like, like no one had fully realized the radical implications or extent of this plan. 
that, that Jew and Gentile would be fully embraced into the people of God on equal terms through Jesus. That Jew and Gentile would become the family of God and the temple of God and indwelt by the very presence of God. That Gentiles would not have to become Jewish to be a part of God's covenant people and receive the blessing of being in relationship with him. They, like Jewish people, would simply need to trust in Jesus. That was the message that was entrusted to Paul. That's the message he is willing to suffer for and to be imprisoned for. And he goes on to write this. He says, look back at the text there. He says, I became a servant of this good news, of this gospel, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am the least of all God's people, this grace was given me. I love that he says, though I was the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. In the midst of talking about this message he's proclaiming, he refers to himself as like unworthy to proclaim it. He says, I'm the least of God's people, yet I was given this job. And I think this is such a fascinating way to describe himself. So let's pause here, because uh, I think it preaches. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, written probably in AD 55, Paul describes himself in this way. Listen to this. He says, I am the least of the apostles. The apostles were those sent by Jesus to tell others about his death, his resurrection. Apostles were those who witnessed a resurrection appearance of Jesus. They had unique authority. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles, right? And so in 55 AD, in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Then in this letter to the Ephesians, written in probably AD 62, he writes, although I am less than the least of all God's people. And in the Greek, the phrase is quite striking. It's like less than the least of all God's people. And then in his letter to a younger man named Timothy, written right at the end of his life, maybe AD 65, 66, he says this about himself. Listen to these words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so it's like as Paul gets older, his assessment of himself seems more negative. From least of the apostles, which is still pretty good, right? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Least of the apostles isn't that bad. But he goes from least of the apostles to least of all God's people until he arrives at worst of sinners. It's like, what's going on here? Well, I think it's actually about Paul growing in Christian maturity. That Paul's actually modeling growth in Christian maturity. That age doesn't always lead to maturity in life and in faith. Growing older doesn't necessarily mean growing wiser. We can do the same foolish thing for a long time, right? We can be like wine or like milk. Both age, but they age very differently. 
It's possible to grow older and actually lose our sensitivity towards sin, to start rationalizing our sin rather than repenting of our sin. And that's a path to increased immaturity. The path to maturity moves in the opposite direction. Let me give you this illustration. Uh, My brother-in-law, Ben, used to play drums all the time. And he told me there was a season of his life where he was practicing all the time, really intensely. And for for a period of time there, he actually thought with all the practicing that he was getting worse. The more he practiced, the worse he felt. And he got so frustrated. He's like, "Why why am I practicing and getting worse? This doesn't make sense. And then he realized that his playing wasn't getting worse. His ear was actually getting better. He was becoming more aware of timing and other issues, right? Practice was making him better, but also making him more attuned to his mistakes. And the Christian life can feel like that, right? The closer we get to God, the more attuned we are, the more in sync we are with the Spirit, the more we're aware of our sin. We might even think we're getting worse, but we're not. We're actually growing and getting better. You're not getting worse. You're getting more sensitive to the things that break God's heart. And that sensitivity is indicative of improved health. Like as we grow in maturity, we become more aware of our sin and more, you know, in awe of the fact that God loves us in a way that heals our shame and heals the broken places in us over time. And I was meditating on this and I was thinking to myself, man, I want to I wanna age like wine, like a fine wine. I want to grow in my love for God and people. And as I grow by grace in my love for God and people, I will grow in my sensitivity towards the ways in which my words and actions grieve God and hurt people. The softer my heart is to God, the softer my heart will be towards others, leading to repentance and growth until the grave. And the more Paul walks with Jesus, the more he's aware of the ways in which he falls short, but the more amazed he is at the love of God. Here's a trustworthy saying, believe me on this, guys. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And his joy actually increased, not decreased. And his amazement over the fact that God invited him to be a part of what he was doing in the world, what God was doing in the world, increased. He was just amazed. He goes, even though I'm the least of God's people, look back at the text, he says, this grace was given to me. You can feel the awe and the wonder. And I'm hoping that the Spirit of God just rekindles that awe and wonder in our hearts that we, like Paul, get to be a part of what God's doing. Look what he says. You can feel it. He goes, this grace was given to me to preach to to the Gentiles the unsearchable, the incomparable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent that was now through the church The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
There's a lot of words there, most of which we've covered. But you hear the awe and the amazement that he gets to share with others the unsearchable riches of Christ. I remember my parents once expressed to my sister uh, their regret about not saving up a big inheritance for us kids. And my sister, in a moment of brilliance, said to them, you told us about Jesus. That is the greatest inheritance we could ever receive. And she didn't say that to make them feel better. She felt it in her core. And Paul would agree. We have like incomparable, unsearchable riches in Christ. And Paul was given grace to preach this message to all people. And in doing so, reveal the multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God in the church. The wisdom that created all things, planned our rescue, put to death our hostility, unites Jew and Gentile into one people who embrace the Messiah Jesus. Like all of that is God's wisdom revealed in the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. And I love what pastor, author, mentor, friend, legend, encourager, Daryl Johnson says about this. He says this. He says, more is going on. Listen to this. More is going on in being the church than meets the eye. Something cosmic is happening. In sharing the unfathomable riches of Christ and in living those riches in the new community centered in Christ, principalities and powers are hearing the gospel. When anyone preaches the gospel, the angelic powers in the heavenly places are being informed about the true nature of reality. And God makes all of us ministers of the gospel to the human realm and to the angelic realm. All of us who belong to Jesus are ministers bringing the mystery to light for others. How amazing is that? And so in light of Paul's calling, in light of the amazing privilege of being a part of what God is doing in history, he writes this. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. See, Paul used to throw Christians in prison for following Jesus. Now he's been thrown in prison for telling others about Jesus. And he says, don't be discouraged about my imprisonment. There is a cost to following Jesus. Paul is willing to suffer for Jesus and to suffer for people. Paul thinks Jesus is worth it. And he wants the believers in Ephesus to believe it. Don't be discouraged by my suffering for the gospel. There's a cost to following Jesus. That right now, across the world, people are suffering for Jesus and dying for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because the mission of Jesus is worth it. The more you love something, the more you're willing to suffer for it. And Paul loved Jesus. And Paul loved people. So he was willing to suffer for both. He says, don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Jesus is worth it. And you are worth it. 
that there are things more important than our security. There are things more important than our freedom. There are things more important than pleasing our family or our popularity. There are things more important than our comfort. If we can avoid suffering, we should do it, right? See a physio, pop a pill, have that surgery, do it. If we can avoid suffering or alleviate it, we should do it. Suffering is a thing that's not good in and of itself. If we can avoid suffering, we should do it. But not at all costs. There are moments when the choice is between Jesus and our comfort, and we choose Jesus, and if it costs us something, that should encourage other Christians. That shouldn't discourage other Christians or seem strange. It should encourage and embolden and bring life to other Christians. Yes, Jesus is worth it. Thank you for the reminder that Jesus is worth it. Yeah, Paul, your imprisonment for the gospel reminds us that Jesus is more important than our rights, and Jesus is more important than our freedom, and Jesus is more important than our comfort, that Jesus and his mission is worth it. If we're trying to get from Jesus anything other than Jesus, we will likely be disappointed. If we're trying to get from Jesus anything other than Jesus, we will likely be disappointed. That Jesus is not the means to some other lesser end like comfort or financial security. Jesus is the goal. His honor, his glory, his fame, his family. In Jesus, we have unsearchable riches. What else could we want more? Everything good costs us something. And any version of discipleship that doesn't cost us something isn't Christian discipleship. It's like, I know I'm saying a lot of things right here, but when we make Christian spirituality all about us and how we improve our lives and reach our potential as we've been doing in North America for years, the call to forsake all and follow doesn't always appear compelling or gain any purchase in our hearts and minds. But that doesn't change the nature of Jesus' call. But if Jesus is not worth suffering for, then the Jesus we know is not the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the apostles, the Jesus of scripture, or the Jesus of Paul, and the superficiality of our discipleship in the West is exposed. You see, it's not ultimately discouraging if Christians are put in prison. It's discouraging if Christians are unwilling to be put in prison for the cause of Christ. Putting Christians in prison will not stop the gospel being proclaimed all over the world. Paul's example proves it. You can't chain this message or cage this message or keep this message behind bars. It's always breaking out. I was reminded recently that for every one affluent millennial rejecting Christianity and the church, there are five non-white, poor, majority world people flocking to Jesus as the only hope in the world. The Western world, it's not indicative of what is going on in the world. That you can't stop this message and putting Christians in prison will not stop the gospel being proclaimed all over the world. Paul's example 
proves it. It is Christians not willing to be put in prison that will hinder the forward progress of the gospel in our world. That there is always a cost to following Jesus. But when we suffer, he suffers. When we're persecuted, he's persecuted. And our willingness to suffer for his sake testifies to the world and other believers the beauty and worth of Jesus unlike anything else. Don't be discouraged by my suffering for the gospel, Paul says. Jesus is worth it. And so is his mission.